Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include a return to a five-day work week, my interview with Mayak Steve Harris on the functions of a broker-dealer in the secondary mortgage market, and reactions to the well-received payrolls report last Friday. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mobile-first technology for the modern mortgage lender. Tens of thousands of loan officers at hundreds of independent mortgage banks, banks, and credit unions use the Simple Nexus homeownership platform to provide a world-class borrower experience. With one login, you and your borrowers can do it all from any device, from uploading docs and checking loan status to paying for appraisals, signing disclosures, and closing. Learn more at simplenexus.com. Gosh, here we are at a five-day work week. You party-going, conference late-nighters, yes, you know who you are, gearing up for the next event, will find this amusing. Companies are taking a hard look at the return on investment in sending people to conferences rather than letting their fingers do the walking, and saving the thousands spent on conferences for pricing and products. Definitely one of the topics at the IMB in San Diego in a couple weeks will be mergers and acquisitions, with both lenders and vendors. There was a lot of M&A activity last year, including several deals done or initiated in December. I'm told by my friends at Stratmore that 2023 is lining up for even more. In fact, I know they were actually working during the last week of the year on some deals, and both Garth and David from Stratmore will be in San Diego at the IMB conference if you want to connect with them to learn more about what's going on related to M&A. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show... Steve Harris, president of Mayak Capital Markets, to talk about what broker-dealers do. He spent most of his career as a vice president at Goldman Sachs, working there for more than 20 years before moving to be a managing director of the Mortgage Banking and Asset Disposition Group at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. He then moved to Mayak, where he became managing director of of the Mortgage Industry Advisory Corporation, and now is the president. Let's talk a little bit about broker-dealers. Can you explain what a broker-dealer is, does, and kind of the role in the secondary mortgage market? Sure. For the vast majority of mortgage bankers, and particularly those that are hedging their pipelines right now, as opposed to just doing best efforts, broker-dealers are the provider of liquidity. And so broker-dealers are buying TBAs from mortgage bankers as the vehicle that they use to hedge their locks. And after the locks progress through the gestation period and become loans that are delivered to investors or become securities delivered to broker-dealers, the broker-dealer community is really providing liquidity. So that liquidity is the number one component for secondary guys. But there are other services that the typical broker-dealer provides. A warehouse line is one uh, facility for financing the non-QM uh, facility for non uh, for fix and flip paper. Just for anything that is non-agency related, they tend to be a pretty aggressive lender, and that's also in addition to some of the banks that provide these lines. But broker dealers are primarily just providing liquidity. And uh, make well, 
and they're making a market. So the market that they're making is in those TBAs. So that's really the primary role uh, or the two primary roles that you see from broker dealers as they face mortgage bankers. Can you elaborate quickly on, on how they're making the market for TBAs, what that means? Sure. What it means is they are using their own principal, their own capital to buy and sell securities. They typically buy from mortgage bankers who are producing the asset, and they will typically sell to investors. And to do so, they will take out a small spread. And that spread is generally the bid-ask spread between their their bid price and their offer price. And in a perfect world, you could buy as a broker-dealer security from someone at par and sell it to an investor at something like, excuse me, round numbers, par and an eighth. And that bid-ask spread is something you put into your um, your profit book. Is there a difference between a, a broker and a dealer? Can they, can they exist on their own? Do they have to be combined into this broker-dealer label? There can be a big difference. The broker-dealers will often provide broker services as separate and distinct from their principal commitment. So what they're doing is literally acting as an introduction uh, facilitator, and they're taking the sellers and introducing them to buyers. Now, they may not do that until the trade is consummated, but generally speaking, what they'll do is take a seller's position and market that to other known investors. And in conducting that auction, they generally get the best price in the market for your seller. So it's, again, providing liquidity. The primary difference between a broker and a broker-dealer is the use of their principal. Broker-dealers will use their capital in general terms. Brokers do not have any capital. So it's the... um, the distinction that I like to use is you're a broker, very similar to way to the way a residential uh, real estate agent works versus the way institutions that invest in those homes, the way they work. So one's a principal commitment where they're taking on that risk for a period of time, could be the home, or they're um, they're just brokering it so there's no principal involved. Can you explain the differences between broker-dealers and investment banking firms? What functions one does that the other might not? Sure. Broker-dealers and investment banking are typically two pieces of the pie, the pie being the whole broker-dealer network. Uh, But in in general terms, it's going to be just liquidity. A broker-dealer is going to provide outright liquidity, an investment bank could provide liquidity and that liquidity could be either by underwriting transactions for you where they'll take it on their balance sheet or it could be a transaction where the um, investment bank gives you advice. The investment bank could be involved in mergers and acquisition The investment bank can be involved in things like fairness opinions. So the role that an investment bank may often contain a broker-dealer, but 
It doesn't have to. When did broker dealers first come on the the scene and how have they evolved over the years? I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the day, broker dealers and banks used to be separate. And then through some uh, legislation that followed the depression, those were separated. The name of that legislation, I completely have forgotten what it was called. But let it be said that that reflected a lot of um, conservative thoughts at the time, that you didn't want to have a bank and an investment bank and a broker-dealer all within the same uh, umbrella, the same aegis of of a business. And the reason for that was when investment bankers made poor investment decisions and utilized their own balance sheet, um, that created a situation where they could go uh, under, they could be uh, defaulting, and they would look to the bank to fund them. And that's just a natural conflict of interest, right? So if you're a broker-dealer, you're using a bank side of your business to finance your activities, it just exposes you to a great, a great deal of contagion. So for many years, the um, banks and broker-dealers were separate. After a certain period of time over the last, um, oh, I don't know, the last 15 or 20 years, again, I'm forgetting the name of this legislation, but once again, banks and investment banks were allowed to uh, function together as part of the same organization. And we ran into problems during the, um, well, gosh, obviously during the period of time when the entire mortgage market was suffering. And that was really the result of non, um, non-agency production, poorly underwritten production, and of course, subprime. I was going to say, I, I might not be very smart, but I know how to Google. And I think, I think what you're speaking of right after the depression is the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, or the Exchange Act, and that regulates broker-dealers, unless there was subsequent legislation that you're referencing. Yeah, there was subsequent, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was an edict that you couldn't have the broker-dealer and a bank and an investment banker all operating under the same umbrella. And at that time, it was because of the failures of all these related entities back in the uh, depression days. So I will think of the name after you and I get off this call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I want to close by asking the you know kind of technological advances that have happened in the space. I, I know things used to be very manual. You call up eight different people on the phone, you know, get a request for quote sort of thing. Maybe it's becoming more automated. What what are you seeing that's that's advancing technologically in the space? Yeah, I, you just hit it. The level of automation is great. A uh, couple of different intra... Uh, well, let's put you this way. There are a lot of different trading platforms that are electronic. Some are brokers. Some are truly dealers taking positions. Um, to give you a name, like Broker Tech. Um, trade web, those are really platforms for brokering. 
But when you get to MaxX and some of the other, those people are portfolioing loans. They, at some point down the road, will portfolio securities, but they're not there quite yet. But the electronic forum for brokering uh, a, a good deal of different products is pretty robust. In terms of the evolution, anything that could be automated has been. So you seldom see a trading desk, as you just said, doing transactions over the phone. It's almost exclusively using these trading platforms. And there's a sales force, but what that sales force is really doing is just trying to get uh, individual mortgage bankers to sell them uh, TBAs uh, to be announced securities. And the other part that we're seeing right now, which I think is most interesting, is the development of portals so that it can eliminate all of the, well, there are errors that are being made, but all of the the direct dialogue, the conversations that are made between a mortgage banker who's delivering a pool or a mortgage banker that's delivering whole loans. And those portals are being set up so that the information uh, relating to the pool characteristics, relating to the loan characteristics can be um, uh, ingested by the broker dealer without having someone get on the phone and potentially make a mistake. Obviously here you have the mistake possibility of fat thumbs, but there are ways to check that and control against it. But that's one of the most exciting parts, which is to simply eliminate the role of the role of people. <laughs> I want to close by asking how someone chooses what broker dealer to work with, how how one broker dealer sets themselves apart from a different broker dealer and, and kind of the benefits they can offer their clients. So there are a couple different areas. The most important is the broker dealers have certain counterparty standards, and a lot of them uh, are pretty restrictive. So the bulge bracket firms like Goldman, like Morgan Stanley, those guys have pretty strict limits on who they'll face. And so those would tend to be just the largest mortgage bankers in the uh, environment right now. So that's number one. Number two is you want to find somebody that has a big franchise that has the contacts on the other side of the business, particularly investors who can transact with you. You want to find somebody that has a big franchise to introduce the element of investors because that's the other side of mortgage banking. You're producing the securities and the loans. Well, someone needs to place them with those investors, long-term investors. And long-term could be two minutes, but it's still someone taking on uh, a principal risk. And you just want to make sure that who you're dealing business, who you're doing business with is a reputable firm. Their standards are significant. And yet they make good markets for you. So it's really those three elements. Well said. And at the risk of striking out with my second and third swings here, it wasn't the the Glass-Steagall Act or FINRA rule. Glass-Steagall? That's what it was? Yes. Okay. There we go. Score, 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 score. 1933 or 1934, one of those years. Yep. Yeah. Well, Steve, I really enjoyed this. I I think that was very informative. And I think this uh, cleared up a lot of questions people may have about broker-dealers. So thank you. My pleasure. And tell your mom and dad I said hello and pat Myrtle on the head for me. Inflation will be in the spotlight this week with the CPI report for December due out on January 12th. The headline consumer price index reading for December is expected to cool 
to 6.7% from 7.1% in November, and be up 0.1% month over month. Core CPI is forecast to be up 5.6% and up 0.2% month over month. Bank of America expects both core goods and energy prices to have declined again in December, but food inflation and core services inflation to have remained stickier. The focus from market watchers will be if the CPI update alters the consensus view that the Federal Reserve will hike interest rates by 50 base points in February and another 25 points in March before going on hold at a terminal rate of 5 to 5.25%. You know, that's funny because I had heard some people saying 25 basis points is a lock at the next Fed meeting. Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President James Bullard noted in a presentation to business leaders that interest rates are moving closer to a quote sufficiently restrictive level although they are not there yet. Meanwhile, Kansas City Fed President Esther George said she believes that the federal funds rate will be above 5% into 2024, and Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostich noted that there is still much work to do. Well, thanks, Raphael. We closed last week learning that the U.S. economy added 223,000 jobs in December, which was above market expectations for 200,000. Unemployment fell to 3.47%, matching its lowest level on record since 1969. Over the course of 2022, more than 4.5 million jobs were added, and while the monthly pace of growth has slowed, it remains well above the long-term average. In November, there were 10.5 million job openings, or roughly 1.75 openings per job seeker. It will take more than just this report to convince the FOMC that supply and demand in the labor market are in healthy balance. While the jobs data continues to show robust growth, the ISM data for manufacturing and services shows a contracting economy. Both surveys reported slowing inflation as well as improving supplier deliveries. Also, from last week, the latest minutes from the FOMC showed no committee members expect a cut to the Fed funds rate in 2023. However, the markets are weighing those statements against expectations of recession and are pricing in cuts in the latter half of the year. Mortgage rates are off their highs from late 2022 and are expected to trend down over the course of 2023. This second full week of the year contains several key market-moving events, including the $90 billion mini-refunding to be held tomorrow to Thursday, as well as the aforementioned CPI and several Fed speakers, including Chair Powell. Besides CPI, other economic releases of interest include consumer credit, small business optimism, wholesale inventories, import prices, and the first look at Michigan cement for January. Class A and B 48 hours are tomorrow and Thursday, respectively, and we also have Q4 bank earnings due out on Friday. Today's economic calendar gets underway later this morning with the December Employment Trends Index. The only other data point is November Consumer Credit, due out in the afternoon. We begin the week with agency MBS prices, worse about an eighth from Friday afternoon, and the 10-year yielding 3.59 after closing last week at 3.56%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. The older baby boomers were all homeschooled. Who knew? Listen on to hear about it in their parents' own words. My mother taught me to appreciate a job well done. She'd say, If you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. My mother taught me religion. You better pray that it will come out of the carpet. (laughs) My father taught me time travel. If you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. (laughs) And my mother taught me ESP. Put your sweater on. Don't you think I know when you're cold? Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, the homeownership platform that unites the people, systems, 
and stages of the mortgage process into one seamless end-to-end solution that spans engagement, origination, closing, and business intelligence. To learn more about Simple Nexus, an Encino company, visit simplenexus.com. Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, MCT, and its hedge advisory, comprehensive capital market software and services that empower secondary marketing performance. To learn more, visit mct-trading.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.